Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to teaching people how to think biblically about everything. This is part three of our four-part series, Refuting Catholicism, and today we're tackling two hugely important topics. First, the Catholic Pope, and second, the Catholic Gospel. I'm going to try and demonstrate that the position of the Pope isn't in the Bible and is not supported by history, and in fact, simply doesn't exist legitimately. Then we're going to take on the Roman Catholic Gospel, quoting official Catholic teaching to establish what the Roman Catholic Gospel actually is, and then showing how the biblical gospel is different. I couldn't overstate how important this is if I tried. This teaching is not just for Protestants, nor is it anti-Catholic in any way. I'm just trying to make a rational biblical case that's meant to convince anyone with an open mind. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us, test all things, hold fast what is good. And that's what we're going to do today. Let's get started. So if you would, um, in preparation, you can get your Bibles out and get them open to John chapter 21, because we're going to look at that. That's one of the first scriptures we'll look at tonight. But while you're going there, let me kind of bring you an intro um, to what we're going to do tonight, what we're going to discuss. We're talking about the, the Roman Catholic Church. We've already discussed there's a difference between the Roman Catholic Church and Catholics. Catholics are individuals. They have individual beliefs. They may or may not agree with the church on different areas, and they may or may not be saved depending on their personal trust in Jesus. And, uh, and so we approach them as individuals. But the Roman Catholic Church is a little bit of a different thing. It has doctrines that are specific, that are detailed, and my contention is that disagree with the Bible. Now, the foundation of this doctrine that the Catholic Church teaches is actually, well, it's one particular thing. The Roman Catholic Church is based on one pillar. The whole church is built on one solid pillar that if this pillar fails, then the rest of the doctrine comes tumbling down. And that pillar is the Roman Catholic Church's claim to have authority. It's the claim of the church to be able to say, we and we alone can tell you what the truth is about God. That's the claim. Because if that claim falls apart, all of a sudden, now I'm holding up the Bible and going, let me make sure that what you say is what's in here. But if their claim's accurate, then I can't interpret the Bible, only they can. So it becomes a very important issue. They are based on authority. The Bible is extra. It is not essential. Roman Catholic Church statements are what's essential. This is really important. When a Catholic theologian uses the Bible to try to prove Catholic doctrine, it's just an exercise. It's not that they think they have to. They don't believe they have to use the Bible. They're just doing that to try to convince you, to try to convince others. But the official teaching of the Catholic Church, well, the Bible's important, the Bible's valuable, but only they can interpret it. So, in other words, they're the ultimate source. That's the, that's the pillar. And in this case, I think the emperor has no clothes. And the authority claims of the Catholic Church are really vapid. They're, they end up being very empty. And we're going to talk about that some more tonight. And uh, I'm going to try to push through. The, um, the, the issues get complicated. And I hear, I mean, I, as my studies and preparation for doing this, ser- this series... I hear so much radically complicated stuff. I could literally spend, I don't know, 52 weeks talking about Catholic theology and where it differs from Protestant theology and all this sort of thing. And you could walk away at the end of the 52 weeks and you'd be like, wow, I learned a lot, but I'm still totally confused. 
So my goal is going to be to sort of summarize these things and sort of bring them into sort of bite-sized pieces as much as possible to simplify them. And I'm going to lose some details along the way, but I shouldn't lose any truth along the way. I'm just, just kind of jump to the point, you know. So the Roman Catholic Church bases their case, according to Vatican I, which we referenced, one of the church councils, which we referenced last week, on two passages of Scripture. Their case for their authority, that single pillar that holds up all the doctrine of the church. We declare it, therefore it's true. Well, that pillar is based on two passages. One is Matthew 16. We looked at that last week and showed that whatever it does teach, it certainly does not teach that Peter was the first pope and that the keys of the kingdom equal Catholic authority. That's certainly not the case. We looked at that last week. You could look at the video from last week if you would like to... um, to get into that in more detail. We also showed that the church has not always believed this like the Catholic Church says they did. In Vatican I, it says, Matthew 16 has always been understood by the church to, being give, to giving a, a authority and primacy to Peter above all the apostles, and that's where the papacy came from. The church has not always understood, understood this. In fact, 80% of the time, 80% of the time, the church fathers disagree with the Catholic uh, interpretation of Matthew 16. So obviously that's not a consistent belief. Now today we're going to look at John 21 because it's the, it's the other passage. So John 21 verse 15. Now keep in mind, they say two things. This passage is where Jesus is giving Peter primacy over all the other apostles. I'm the one in charge of the church. And the church has always believed this to be the case. So it's not a new teaching from them. It's always been the case. And everyone has always known it except for a few, um, you know, perverted people who've twisted doctrine. So John 21 says this in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to them, him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now the Catholic teaching, which I read last week to you, I won't read those long quotes again, is that in these words, feed my lambs, you know, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That in these words, Jesus gave Peter primacy over the other apostles and basically the papacy. It exists now. Jesus institutes it, and it's in this passage. Now, the first thing you notice in this post-resurrection passage, Jesus sees Peter after his three times denying, and then he's sort of reinstituting Peter um, as, a, as a follower and as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a shepherd and a minister of the sheep. But what you notice is this. Whatever Jesus is doing here, this says nothing about a papacy. I mean, you would never read this if you didn't know about the papacy. You'd never read the Bible and come up with that doctrine. It just would never happen. It would never occur to you. It's completely artificially, you know, foisted upon the scriptures, pushed onto the Bible. We need clear teachings, not vague implications, especially when someone's claiming to have authority over the entire world. This passage doesn't do that for them. Jesus here is putting Peter in a shepherding position. Yes, absolutely a shepherding position. But does that make, because feeding the sheep and tending the lambs, that's a shepherding role. But does that make him like the ultimate apostle who's in charge of all the other apostles? No. In fact, Acts 20.28, it talks about all of the elders in Ephesus 
And all of them are told that they're to shepherd the church of God. All of them. Every elder is told to shepherd. In fact, I'm a pastor, and that means shepherd. That, that's, what, that's what my goal is. That's what my job is. is I'm, I'm to tend the sheep and feed the lambs and minister to the body of Christ. So this role is a really generic role, this shepherding thing. So is this uh, Papal, this call? Is he now the chief of all the apostles? Actually, Peter never even thought of himself this way. In 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, I'll read to you. Here's Peter writing to other church leaders. And notice he doesn't introduce himself as his eminence or his holiness or anything like that. He just simply says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And here's, here's his exhortation to them. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So they're shepherds too. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords. I may be a, a pastor and a shepherd, but I am not your boss. And hopefully that makes you happy. We don't, we don't have the kind of ministry where I tell you who you're going to marry and what car you can buy and how much money you have to tithe. That is creepy. And it is not, I am not a lord over the people of God as a, as a shepherd. And neither did Peter see himself as that. Um, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So there is a chief shepherd. There is this one who's in charge of all the shepherds, and he, they're all accountable to him. And they'll receive their crown from this chief shepherd. Who's, he, who's Peter talking about? Jesus. And he is not referring to himself. He's not the chief shepherd of whose place I'm in. He doesn't say anything like that. He puts himself alongside them, fellow elder, fellow shepherd. And here, here's the chief shepherd, Jesus. So Peter's just like right in line with all the other leaders. That's, that's how he sees himself. The one unique difference is he was a witnesser or a, um, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He actually was walking with Jesus and saw him, and they later were not. But that, of course, can't be applied to the Pope either because he has not been that in that situation. Neither have I. Now, do you know this? That they say that the church has always interpreted this passage in John 21 as referring to Peter as the Pope. But no early church writing, none, interprets this as some sort of papal proclamation to Peter. Not even one. The earliest interpretation where someone says that this is papal in John 21 is from 680 AD. Over 600 years later, then someone finally has the idea that this is papal. And who is it? Pope Agatho. A very self-serving claim for his own power to increase by tying it to this scripture. By the time of the Council of Trent in the 1500s, by the time then of Vatican I in the 1800s, I think it was 1870, all of a sudden now it's like actual Catholic infallible teaching that this has always meant that and everyone's understood it, but that's demonstrably false. Really what's happening is like three times Peter denied Jesus and three times Jesus reinstates Peter. And there's more details there. There's a lot more in the passage, but that's the context. Um, Peter did not claim to be the Pope. He's not treated as the Pope. He didn't wield the power of the papacy. If Peter wasn't the Pope, how can his successor be the Pope? If Peter's not the Pope, nobody is. There is no Pope. It's important that the Catholic Church ties their authority to, to Peter. It's, I mean, they have to tie it to something. And so they tie it to Peter. It's important to make that connection. But even in the book of Acts, chapter 15, we get this council, the first council of the church. They gather together to deal with the issue about, should the Gentiles observe Old Testament laws? 
about dietary restrictions and should they be circumcised, all that kind of stuff. The council decides against this, and they say, no, 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 this is not the gospel that's been revealed to us, and yada, yada, and they send a letter out. But what's really interesting is to notice this. This council is in Jerusalem, which is where Peter is. He's in Jerusalem. Peter speaks at the council, and he proclaims, hey, guys, remember when I went, and I went to the centurions, I went to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and this and that. Obviously, he doesn't need them to get circumcised to be saved. He filled them with his spirit before they were ever circumcised. And so he speaks up. But then... The one who makes a decision is James. Peter's there, but James is the one in Acts 15 who makes a decision and says, I judge thus. And then he says, we'll write a letter, we'll do this, such and such, and then that's what happens, that's what's done. So Peter, while he has a certainly a very important role, and he certainly was a mouthpiece in a lot of cases, he seemed to be the public speaker, um, partially because he was just impetuous and would talk a lot. <laughs> As you'll, you'll see in scripture, he just kind of, a big mouth Peter, some people call him that. I would not use such a, a slur against Peter. I, th- I think Peter's an awesome guy. I think he's an amazing man. I'd love to just sit and just listen to the guy talk and teach and just be around him. I think it'd be, it'd be amazing, amazing just to be able to be like that. If I could be around all the apostles, I don't think I'd say anything. I'd just sit there and be like, you guys talk. I'm just going to listen. You know, <laughs> just, I would love it. I mean, amazing guy, amazing guy. But he's not seen as the leader of the church universal in the book of Acts, even years later. So, so yeah. When all else fails, when the Bible doesn't teach the papacy, when the Bible doesn't teach certain peculiar Roman Catholic doctrines, although there's many good Roman Catholic doctrines, I mean the Trinity and the, the, the respect towards the Word of God and the, the belief in so many different things, um, so much of the teaching about salvation is accurate and right. So much is good. But where they deviate... What's uniquely Roman Catholic, that stuff, when you can't find it in the Bible, when, when you can't find it in the scripture and you can't teach it with the Bible, you run to the early church fathers. And that's what you do. You go to other people. Find another source so I can support my doctrine. When all else fails, they will fall on the early church fathers and they'll say it was always known to be this way. And you need to know why they do this. Catholic theologians run to the early church fathers plainly because the Bible does not support their teachings. That's why. I have to find another source for the belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin because the Bible doesn't support that. It says Jesus had brothers. And they go, oh, well, brothers there means such and such, but it, it just means brothers. I have to find another source to say that priests can't be married. The only time the Bible in the New Testament mentions an idea of people not being married, it, ta- it calls it a doctrine of demons forbidding people to get married. And then they'll go on and have doctrines that the priest cannot get married and that has not borne very good fruit in those lives. It's a wonderful choice if someone makes to be single for the Lord, if they make that choice. But I probably wouldn't be before you right now as a pastor if someone told me that I had to, you know, I was forbidden to be married if I wanted to serve the Lord in this capacity. Well, the Bible does not support those uniquely Roman Catholic doctrines. And I'm going to give you, um, in case you're talking to a Catholic person or maybe you're coming across Catholic theology, and then they run to the early church fathers and they begin quoting things that you're like, what are you talking about? I can't even pronounce that guy's name, let alone know what you're talking about when you quote him. I'm going to give you four reasons why running to the church fathers does not help the Vatican's cause. Four reasons, okay? One, church fathers are not the fathers of the church. 
It's a fancy name to be called a church father, but when you show up hundreds of years after Jesus, you are not a father of the church. Like when the, when the, when, when the thing you fathered existed before you, you're not its father. Does that make sense? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this should be easy to understand. Church fathers can be any time as late as the 8th century A.D., so it'll say, the church father so-and-so, and the guy may, may be writing in 750 A.D., 620 A.D. This is way, way, way long after. The book of Acts records the early church, not the church fathers. I don't like using the term church fathers, but because it's used so much, I feel like I don't have much of a choice. If I'm going to talk about these guys, I'll just use the accepted vernacular. But, but they're not the fathers of the church. That, that immediately strips away so much of this, like, of the power behind what they say when you realize they didn't start the church, they didn't plant the church, they came and inherited, you know, ministries and then made statements. And we need to look back further. We need to go to the scriptures. And if you want to see the early church, the actual early church, it's not in 300 AD. It's in 50 AD. It's in 40 AD. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 5 and chapter 10 and chapter 15 and chapter 2, chapter 30. Just kidding, there's no chapter 30. I'm just, just testing you. The reason they look to the fathers is because they cannot find their teachings in the Bible. But someone who speaks 300 or 700 years after Jesus is in, I have no reason to think they're an authority. I just have no reason. So I don't really want to battle church father with church father with church father. I want to go to the scriptures and say, show me here. And that's what the Reformation did when they said, sola scriptura, like only the Bible. You show it to me in the Bible and I'll believe it. And that is certainly my position today. But the, the vague passages that were brought to from Catholic theologians that, that, to teach things like the papacy and stuff like that um, are certainly not sufficient. The second reason why you can't trust um, the church fathers or I should say specifically, not that you can't trust them. That, please don't quote me on that. Uh, some of them have great things to say, that's for sure. But the second reason why you cannot trust the Vatican's rendition of the Church Fathers is because of something I heard, I've heard one theologian call Peterism, which I thought was a, was a fun term. <laughs> Peterism, which is this idea that a Catholic apologist will often quote Church Fathers to support the idea that Peter was the first pope, right? But what they'll do is they'll take the quote out of context. And basically, if this, if this guy said anything nice about Peter, then Peter's the first pope. So they'll be like, Peter, who was, who was of note among the apostles. Like that phrase right there, boom. That's the papacy. That proves it. He said he was of note. So that it's a sort of like a vague reference to Peter or anything nice about Peter or that Peter carried the gospel to the Gentiles and was the first one to preach to the Gentiles and they received the Spirit. And you're like, therefore he's the Pope. And I'm like, well, hold on a second here. Like one thing does not lead to the other. And this is, this is what happens is this Peterism. Now, the problem with Peterism is that you're editing the fathers. You're sort of selectively pulling some things they said, and then the same father might have said something totally against the papacy, and they'll just ignore that part. So it's just a very selective, edited version of the church fathers, um, who also are not the fathers of the church. The third issue is this. There's contradictions and inconsistencies among the people they're quoting to support Catholic doctrine. The church fathers do not like hold arms and stand together, saying together, you know, purgatory, Mariology, these, these things are not there. The rosary, 
Like these things, they're, they're not standing together preaching Roman Catholicism. It's just not accurate. But because there's so many church fathers and the volumes and volumes you have to read, it's just so intimidating that nobody's going to go double check it. So they just go, oh, okay, that's you're like, you're just talking over my head at this point. Just an example, last week, I already did this with you, so I'll, I'll spare you the time, but last week, Matthew 16, the Catholic Church says, hey, everyone's always agreed that this passage is about Peter getting the keys to the king, to kingdom, and Peter is the rock in the passage, but yet, 80% of the time, 80, the church fathers disagree. So they don't stand together saying Roman Catholic theology. <coughs> Not only that, um, they actually say things a lot of the time that come directly against Roman Catholicism. Clement, one of them, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians and he wrote that there were a multiplicity of elders. There was a bunch of elders in Rome and it was individual sort of groups of, of believers with their own eldership independently running. There was no bishop of Rome the whole place. There was no pope at the time. That's how Clement puts it. Tertullian, he's the first person to ever use the phrase bishop of bishops or Pontifex Maximus, and these are titles of the Pope. He's the first person to use them. This was in the early 3rd century, right? But here's the interesting thing. Tertullian was using them to insult the Bishop of Rome. And he said, Bishop of Bishops, Pontifex Maximus, as an insult, like tongue-in-cheek, I'm insulting you, because he was upset that this person was seeming to claim to have more authority than they deserved. And so he uses the, frame bishop of, the phrase bishop of bishops. He also says, like I said, Pontifex Maximus. That was a Roman pagan high priest name. And he's trying to say, see, you're doing what that guy does. That's totally pagan. That's not Christian, you Pontifex Maximus. That'd be like I was saying, oh, you're like President Monson or something like that. Like I name you, you know, after some sort of cultish leader. And that's what he did. Now, later, these became titles of the pope. But certainly this church father doesn't agree. Cyprian, he presided over the Seventh Council of Carthage and he said this. Another one of the church fathers. For neither does any of us set himself up as bishop of bishops, nor by tyrannical terror does any compel his colleague, other bishops, the necessity of obedience, since every bishop, according to the allowance of his liberty and power, has his own proper right of judgment and can no more be judged by any man than he himself can judge another. So the point is that Cyprian is saying, hey, each of the bishops or the, the leaders of the different churches is accountable to God. And you can't tell that. You can't go over here and say, I'm going to tell this church what they need to do and need to not do and this and that. God's raised up that leader. That leader is accountable to God. There is no central one guy that's in charge of everybody. And this is, uh, this is important to Roman Catholic theology because Cyprian, the guy who says there's no one bishop above the rest, he is the same guy who is one of the few who thinks that Peter was the rock in Matthew 16. But how could he think Peter's the rock and not think that that means Peter's the pope? Because he thought every one of them was the rock. He thought every leader carried that was now the rock on which the church was built. And that, do you see how it, 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 this doesn't sound like Roman Catholic theology? And it's not. It's not historically accurate. This is not some obscure thing. This is totally essential. These early fathers do not agree with the Roman Catholic Church. There isn't like this unanimous voice saying Roman Catholic theology. This is why Catholicism and Catholic theologians have to edit and cut and paste the things that the church fathers say to create a, you know, a, an appearance 
that it's teaching. And so what the church does is say, they say, yeah, the church fathers have authoritative tradition, but we select which things they said are authoritative. And then they piece it together to, you know, to endorse their current theology. The fourth issue is this. That's three. Here's the fourth. It completely and utterly ignores the Bible. Quoting early church fathers is a problem because it ignores the Bible. Now, does the Bible say anything about how the church is to be run? Yeah, it talks about the offices of the church in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, in 1 Corinthians 12, and the continuing offices of the church are elders and deacons, and a pope is never mentioned, not once. Not even once. Doesn't it seem irresponsible of God to leave us with the scriptures and not mention that he has one person who's ruling over the whole church and he's just silent about that guy? There's no pope, there's no magisterium. There are teachers, but they're not considered infallible. They're not considered infallible. It's up to the individual Christians to test them by the word. That's how the New Testament puts it. But that's not Roman Catholic theology. And the church is not an organization. The church is the people. I love the phrase, the church is an organism, not an organization. When you get saved, even if you're alone on a boat out in the middle, in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle and you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're part of the church, even though you have not joined any affiliation of any particular local group of believers. You are part of the church. But in Catholicism, you can put faith in Jesus and not be part of the church because you have not joined the church, the Catholic church. And so this is, this is the organization of the church in the scripture is pretty clear, and it disagrees with, uh, with, with um, Roman Catholic theology. Now, Galatians 1, we talked about last week. And Galatians 1 has this beautiful passage where Paul threatens himself <laughs> and anyone else who is to preach a false gospel, or even, actually, he just says a different gospel. He just, a different gospel equals a false gospel, right? So he just says, if anyone, me whether it's me, whether it's anyone else, an angel from heaven even, even with supernatural powers, comes and preaches to you a gospel other than what you've already received, let him be anathema. So that means that the, the hearer, the Galatian person who read this, and me and you, to whom God wrote it as well, we're supposed to hear what, hear what comes from other people, leaders and teachers, and say, let me compare that to what I've already received. That's not, that's not accurate. Then I reject you. So we're individually responsible for accepting and rejecting teaching based upon how it lines up with the word. And this is, this is beautiful. Paul had delivered the gospel, and even Paul the apostle, with all his authority, says, not even I am allowed to change what you've already received. So how could the Catholic Church then develop doctrine and then say they're the only ones who can interpret it? It's, it's not biblical. This is an issue because there are times when spiritual leaders get wrong. In the Old Testament, there were bad spiritual leaders. Aaron, who helped them build a golden calf, and then told Moses when he came back down the mountain, and then this thing just popped out of the fire. You're like, it's like, it wasn't a very good liar, that guy. Aaron's sons were burned up. God fired them because they, uh, they, they were offering strange fire before the Lord. In Gideon, Gideon, who's, I love Gideon, awesome guy, beautiful truths in the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, but Gideon in his later life did stuff that just makes us not even want to talk about that part. You know what I mean? Not because we're ashamed of what the Bible says, because the Bible condemns what he did. it's, It's just sad to see how a great leader could go south. Several of the rightful kings of Israel, right, let me point this out, rightful, 
authorities in Israel taught bad, wrong things. And God calls the people to go to his word rather than to trust them. In the New Testament, this is consistent. Jesus encounters the Pharisees. In fact, the the Pharisees are so much like Catholic leadership. And I'm not saying the Catholic leaders are Pharisees. I'm saying there are some parallels here. The Pharisees claimed authority from Moses. The Catholic Church claims authority from Jesus. The Pharisees said, we're in Moses' seat. We have Moses' position to tell you what his word means and what God's word means and all this. And we're the leaders and you do what we say. The Catholic Church says, we sit in Jesus' spot, the chair of Peter, and we declare to you with all authority. The Pharisees claimed to have traditions that were authoritative and that everyone must observe or they would be rejecting God. The Roman Catholic Church claims to have traditions that are authoritative and everyone must observe or they're rejecting God. The Pharisees had some biblical teachings and they had some unbiblical teachings. The Roman Catholic Church has some biblical teachings and some unbiblical teachings. Um, The consistencies are are consistent (laughs) between the two of them. Jesus, so how did Jesus treat the Pharisees? Um, Well, if you've read the New Testament, which I think everybody here has, you know how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. Not to say he hated them. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Jesus dealt harshly with him, but to open his eyes, to pop those eyes open, and Nicodemus came to the Lord beautifully, wonderfully, right? But in Matthew 16, he tells the people, Matthew 16, he tells the people, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And then it goes on to, to, to interpret this for us. I love when they get, it, the Bible interprets it for us to say this meant the teaching or the doctrine of the Pharisees. Beware the doctrine of the Pharisees. So yeah, he said to you know, let them have some authority because they're in this spot or whatever, but beware their doctrine. Don't follow the things that are not accurate. Go, go to the word, go to the word, go to the word. Jesus systematically dismantled the bad doctrines of the Pharisees. He targeted them. He like specifically pointed out the bad doctrines in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He talks about marriage and he restores a biblical view of marriage. He talks about rituals and about how there were vain rituals and prayers, vain prayers. Don't use vain repetition when you pray, he says. And he talked about um, the fact that they put too much emphasis on appearance and upon, upon their, their phylacteries, they make them big and broad, and da-da-da-da, and it's, it's, the emphasis is in the wrong place. But he actually targeted the places where they got it wrong, and when he spoke to the Pharisees, he would often say to them things like this. And notice, these guys, these guys were like pros in the word, right? They just study the word and traditions and everything. He says, haven't you read? <laughs> Which seems to me to be insulting. Like, if you came to me and were like, Mike, haven't you even read? In Exodus, where it says da da da, I'd be like, well, gosh, like, but you're really saying I'm clueless when you say that. And Jesus was saying that. John, in the first introduction of the Pharisees to the entire Bible scene in Matthew 3, John, as they're coming up, here come the Pharisees, and John opens his mouth and he calls them a brood of vipers. So, what am I saying? The Bible makes it clear that we need to go to the Bible, not to the leaders. Very clear. Example after example after example. In fact, we know for sure that there were false teachers in the day when the scriptures were written. Whole books of the New Testament were written specifically to combat false teachers. We know that in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, let me read it to you. For I know this, Paul speaking, after my departure, 
I like how he calls his, his death depart his departure. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from these are two different groups. Savage wolves come into the flock, but from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples. And notice to what end? After themselves. So there's going to be people who come into the church or come from in the church, and they stand up and they start making it about them instead of about the Lord. They start making it about their kingdom and they're getting people to come and follow me, follow me, follow me, instead of follow Jesus. Or like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, but don't just follow me. So there was a, a warning that there would become a time where people made it about them instead of about following Jesus. That they tried to build their kingdom and their sort of like cluster of follow me people. And that's entirely what the Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has done. Well, there's more reasons, but... The point here is the only way to sort out biblical belief from unbiblical belief is to actually go to the Bible. Not to the early church fathers, not to the later church fathers, not to any of these guys, because I knew there were false teachers in the time of the apostles. So how could I just go to old writings? I know that afterwards, people would come from within the church with false teachings. I'm warned in acts about it. So how can I go to the writings of some of those people knowing that there would be false teaching coming from amongst them? So I have to patiently, faithfully go to the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test all things, hold fast to that which is good. How can I test all things if the Roman church's claim to have all authority is true? I can't. I don't get to test anything. They test it all, and I just hold fast whatever they say. That's scary to me. Acts 17.11. Acts 17.11 says this. And this applies to us. When the apostles went to Berea and they preached the gospel there, here's how the Bereans responded. Now, I want you to, to think, based on Catholic authority, how would a, a good Roman Catholic view what the Bereans did? These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were true. Now, Roman Catholic doctrine would imply that this is a bad exercise. You're, we're the ones that can interpret the Bible. You can't. Now, many Roman Catholics would be like, this is a good idea. I mean, they would, the individuals would be like, yeah, search the scriptures, find out. But the implication here is that you have enough discernment to go to the Bible yourself and read it for yourself and figure out whether these doctrines are accurate or not. But the Roman Catholic claim is you don't. This is why the church over the centuries held back the Bible from getting to people. Now, the, the current Pope did tell people, read your Bibles. And good for him. Good. That's good. Why did it take so long? <laughs> Why is it? I mean, that, that the Catholic Church, um, over the years, and even in the time of the Reformation, was persecuting people for translating the Bible into the, the native language of the people around them. They only wanted it in Latin. They didn't want the Bible to be read by the people individually, not in a language they understood. Um, they bought Bibles that were printed. They burned them, destroyed them so people couldn't get them. And, um, and even still, in many places, the, the services happen in languages people can understand. There is not an emphasis on educating the people of God with the word of God and letting them get the Bible into their own laps and test all things. So this is, that's not a biblical view. That's all I'm saying. Now, there, there is a change going on in the Roman Catholic Church encouraging people to read the, read the word. That's a good change. I want to encourage that. Yeah, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Test what I say, too. Don't just take my, my word for it. So, the Bible, in effect, here's my conclusion. 
The Bible teaches the opposite of tradition. It teaches the opposite. There are occasional traditions you'll see uh, Jesus observe. He, he goes to, the, to Hanukkah, that festival, that was not in the Old Testament, but they do it. So we have a case for Jesus celebrating a holiday that was not specifically outlined in the Old Testament. I'm like, great, because I happen to like Christmas. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that that Hanukkah event was somehow authoritative and that everyone, you know, it, it, just, it just doesn't go to the next stage. However, many, many, many times we have tradition being, being told, uh, being spoken against. The traditions of man being taught as the oracles of God, yada, yada. So the Bible teaches, in a sense, the opposite of the Roman Catholic view on tradition. So what is the real history? I want to do now, uh, move away from that, that that one pillar of the church, I think we've taken a big chunk out of it, and the rest of it's going to fall, I think, right now, as we overview what uh, what's the real story. How did the Roman Catholic Church develop? So the Roman Catholic version that they've always basically believed the same things they do today, that the Roman Catholic Church is basically a slightly different version of what it was in Peter's day, is completely um, untrue, historically. The book of Acts records for us the birth of the New Testament church and some of the history of the first 30 years of Christianity. In spite of great persecution, by the end of the first century AD, churches have been established in lots of different cities throughout the Roman Empire, including Rome. Primarily because of its location at the capital of Rome, the church in Rome very slowly over time began to get more more authority, more prominence from other churches. But it happened gradually over time. It did not have it initially. In fact, the chief church in the very early church was located where? Anybody want to guess? In Jerusalem. That's why the council in Acts 15 happened in Jerusalem, not Rome. Um, Not just because it was convenient, but because that's where the apostles were and that's where sort of the center of Christianity was. When persecution increased, it seemed to move over to Antioch, as far as, is there a church that others are looking to, you know? And, um, and then over time, it eventually started to, started to be Rome, but there were other competitors as well. In 313, the year 313, now we're way after Jesus already at this point, and we're generations and generations away. The Roman emperor Constantine He brought them from persecution to legalization. He legalized the Christian faith. He ended the persecution of Christians with what's called the Edict of Milan in 313. Um, And the church began gaining greater prominence because now they could practice their Christianity more publicly. Now they could just be more open about it. So they started to get more and more prominence. Most scholars outside the Catholic Church, they reject the popular teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that the church at Rome was established by Christ himself through Peter, And I'm going to give you five reasons why. Number one, there is no record, none, that Peter was ever the bishop of Rome, as the Catholic Church claims. None. There's just no record of it. Not only does the Bible not teach Peter was the Pope, he wasn't even a leader in Rome. But that's central to the Catholic claim. They have to say Rome, the city of Rome, is where the authorities carried. Because over the centuries, other people would, would claim it as well. So they'd go, no, no, only Rome. Only Rome. Why? Because um, Peter. Because Peter came here. And so then it's like, Peter came here and therefore it stuck. the authority stuck here. Irenaeus is the earliest source saying that Peter was the, was the founder of the church in Rome. And he's from 200 A.D., the earliest source, 200 AD. He said that Peter and Paul founded the church in Rome. The irony here is, 
we know Paul did not found the church in Rome. So we know half of what Irenaeus says is wrong. Because read the Bible. Romans, the book, shows us that the church was well established and Paul had not been there yet. And he's like, oh, I want to come and visit you and I'd like to come see you and I want to impart some spiritual gift to you, you know. And he wants to get over there, but he had not yet visited them. And so Irenaeus, I'm going to say, hey, I know Paul didn't, so why should I think Peter did? You're, you're half wrong for sure and you're 200 years uh, later, so, you know. Eusebius. Now this guy, Eusebius, I'm going to give you, these are the, four, these are the five reasons. Number two is this. Eusebius, who's called the father of church history, who's a historian, he lived between 260 and 341, he never mentions Peter as the bishop of Rome. Now check this out. He's a believer who writes about the history of the church, and he never mentions Peter as the bishop of Rome. Imagine a Catholic today writing a survey of Catholic history and never mentioning Peter, the first pope. You can't, it, it, you know, it's like not mentioning George Washington and writing a survey of American history. Why doesn't he do it? Because the later claims about Peter hadn't happened yet, so it wasn't important to them to do that, and he wasn't part of the what is now the Roman Catholic Church. That's not what Eusebius was really part of. How could he ignore the first pope? He does say this. Here's all he says. At about the end of his days, Peter went to Rome and was crucified there. That's it. Somebody else started the church there. Missionaries, I don't know, individuals, some lady that heard the gospel in Jerusalem went back to Rome and just started telling people about it. We don't know. It just happened organically because the church is an organism. <laughs> we, how do we grow? I don't know. It's just like the same way a baby in the womb grows. It just like it just really in cool ways. <laughs> it just does. Number three, the third reason why, why we should reject the Roman Catholic view of history here. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, greets more than two dozen people by name. At the end of his letter, see Romans chapter 16. You're like, why is this in here? All these names are just people being greeted. Two dozen people, but who does he leave out? Peter. He greets all kinds of businessmen. He greets different random people, fellow workers, not Peter. That would be a strange omission if Peter was living in Rome, especially if he was the bishop and the first pope of the church to ignore the leader of the church. Supposedly, Peter was the pope. Why doesn't Paul mention him? The fourth reason is that Peter, in First and Second Peter, never calls himself, I've already read to you in First Peter chapter 5, the passage, he never calls himself by any title that puts him above any other church leader. He never calls himself by any title that puts him above any other leader. He's just an apostle. In First Peter 1 and in Second Peter 1, in the introduction to both those letters, he just says, Peter, an apostle. Not like the chief or the leader, none of that kind of stuff, which you might be like, well, he was just being humble. And I'm like, well, there's not really very much humble about calling yourself an apostle. I mean, you're, I'm an apostle. Like, you're not exactly humble here. You're just stating facts. But he just puts himself on even, even uh, playing field with all the other apostles. And lastly, much is said about the structure of the church. And it doesn't involve a pope or anything similar to Catholic government. So what we're saying here is this. The papacy is, is not old. I mean, it's older than me and you, but it is not original. There's nothing OG, original gospel about, about the papacy. So let's talk more about the history. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. And as the church in Rome allied itself with the Roman government, 
And we can imagine how this happens. You just begin working more and more closely. They start to consult. They go, hey, will you pray for us? And we're going to do this thing. And you start to get more and more authority. It continues to grow in its authority and influence. Originally, there were multiple bishops and leaders in Rome. As early as the third century, the leaders of the church in Rome were claiming for themselves a supremacy over other churches throughout the empire when it came to matters of doctrine. So by the third century, 300 years later, somebody's saying, hey, I have the authority to tell you what what the right doctrine is. You should come here and ask me. However, nobody else acknowledges this authority. <laughs> it's only the guy in Rome claiming it, which sounds kind of empty. You know, there's a dude in Mexico, even right now, claiming he's Jesus. That doesn't really do much for you, though, unless, I mean, it's more impressive if everybody else agrees, <laughs> or if perhaps the Bible doesn't go against people claiming they're Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, when I come, you'll know. <laughs> now, by the sixth century, the church in Rome was exercising jurisdiction over other churches, and thus the Roman Catholic Church was born. Now we begin to see something like you would call it, that's the Roman Catholic Church, right around that time, the 6th century. Eventually, the Roman Catholic Church started to claim that only if you're directly in submission to the Pope can you be saved. And that was a new thing. It was not original. It was very new. Most scholars say the beginning of the Catholic Church was about 590 A.D., and it's not like this clear-cut thing. It was a slow evolution over time. But if you're going to have to put a date on it, 590 AD is, is as good a date as any. And when the leader of the church in Rome, Gregory I, expanded the authority of the church to include, check this out, military and civil power. And he set the church on a new course. Um, so Gregory's like, hey, yeah, I, I, get, I get to control the government too. And that's the claim of the Catholic Church. And there's been times in history where the Catholic Church was in control of the government, and other times where the government was in control of the Catholic Church, taking a pope out of office, putting a new pope in, kind of a puppet, um, and it went, kind of went back and forth, depending on who had more power at the time. Rome's claim to supremacy and legal jurisdiction, it was vigorously resisted by other churches. In fact, it was never able to be enforced in the eastern part of the whole empire. A whole chunk of the Roman Empire where the churches there said, we, don't, we, don't, we do not acknowledge your claim to have authority over us. Eventually, it led to the first major split called the first schism, or the first schism, depending on where you're from. And this was in 1054, or schism, I guess, if you really want to. I like schism. It's got a nice ring to it. Uh, in 1054, the first schism, or what uh, in Roman Catholic history, they call it the Great Schism. And this was when the whole Eastern Church just like, boop, broke away from the Catholic Church in Rome. The church in the East went on to become known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, also known as the Greek Orthodox Church. And they were like, you guys are, you guys are just getting more and more power hungry, and we're out of here. We do, not, we do not agree with your claims to have this power. And they broke off, and they've never come back. Now, the church is working really hard in this century and in the latter part of the 1900s to create a, a, make a bigger umbrella of the Roman Catholic Church to try to say, hey, um, you don't have to agree with us, but we can still sort of fellowship with each other. And they're, they're just trying to increase their influence in a whole different style than they used to. Before it was like, come under our authority. Now it's like, um, sort of agree with us and about certain things and, and just let bygones be bygones kind of thing. It's a different strategy. The Roman church is, is, is evolving, continuing today to evolve. The next major split in the church happened in Wittenberg, Germany on a well, it started on October 31st, which we might know as Halloween, in 1517, when Martin Luther 
nailed his 95 theses, his statements about issues he thought were in the Catholic Church. Now, he was not trying to start a reformation or a revolution. He was just trying to say, and this was an acceptable way of doing it, hey, let's talk about these issues. He thought the Catholic Church should be adjusted back to biblical standards and that indulgences and purgatory and um, uh, the power of the Pope and most importantly, the gospel message, these things have been lost or distorted or added for no reason by the Catholic Church. And so he wrote the 95 Thesis, and uh, I encourage you to read it sometime. But we do not, as Christians today, trace our roots to Martin Luther. I just want to say this. I am not a follower of Martin Luther. The whole point of the Reformation is go to the Bible. That's the point. We didn't trade the Pope for Pope Luther. That's not what we did. And so I'm not going to be here quoting a bunch of Luther and Calvin and other, and other Reformation leaders as though I want to compare like their councils with Catholic councils and combat them. And I just think that's radically confusing. And I just want to go to the scriptures. And I think that you'll be relieved to know that we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, now, we would, uh, I think we can say and conclude this. The Roman church considers themselves as a continuation of an essentially unchanged organization that's been going on since the time of Jesus and Peter, and that is utterly false. The papacy was a gradual development that went through many different stages, slowly claiming more and more authority for themselves, slowly gaining the ability to enforce that authority, and then causing great schism when they did, and not having a biblical grounding for it. Today's Roman Catholicism is radically different than the church in Rome in even 800 AD, 500 AD, 300 AD, or closer to the time of the apostles. It's just very, very different. They would not recognize it. The apostles would not recognize this. So, um, with the time I have left, I want to get into what I think is the heart of the issue. I think that 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 clearly cuts the pillar out, right? You are not historically Christian. You are not biblically Christian. Where is your authority? You can't get it from the fathers, and you can't get it from the Bible. Where do you get it? From your claims for authority. And therefore, you don't have any. Jesus himself did not say, oh, I'm just going to come and show up with authority. He was like, no, I got witnesses, and I got this affirmation, I got this proof. He offered his miracles as proof. He offered John the Baptist testimony as proof, and he offered the Old Testament prophecy as proof. He was like, Even me, I'm going to be grounded in evidence from the scriptures you've already received. And I do not see that evidence in the Bible. And so, there you go. And that pillar goes away, which means now I can say, Catholic Church, what are your teachings? I can test them with this now. Because I don't believe you have the authority to just tell me what to believe. Well, the gospel is the number one issue there. The foundation of the Roman Catholic Church is that claim to authority. But the gospel, the gospel is the most important issue altogether. I want to cover this in general because, the, oh gosh, the gospel in, in, in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church is radically complicated. And I doubt you could get a, a, a Catholic theologian to even summarize the gospel for you. I'll be like, yeah, we've all sinned. Repent, put your faith in Jesus Christ. He died and rose for your sins. You're saved. Like, just believe, you know. And it's really simple, and you can kind of just summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ in lots of different ways, in really short sentences, but not the gospel of Catholicism. But let's start with the gospel of the Bible. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Because we agree with Catholics 
that everybody has sinned and that hell is the destiny for sinners and that we need forgiveness and righteousness in order to get to heaven, the disagreement is on how that happens. But what does the Bible say? Let's go through some scriptures. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the gospel is, it is, here's the gospel, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is that you can be saved and given righteousness by believing in Jesus. And man, that is peaceful. That is comforting. That is so wonderful. <laughs> I am at peace because of what he has done and not because of what I have done. Philippians 3.9 says this. Uh, Paul speaking of, of this, and he says, And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that the righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That we get righteous by faith. There's a big piece of the gospel right there. We just get righteous by faith, as it said in Romans 1. And then in Romans 5, and you can turn back to, turn to Romans. We'll be there for a few verses here. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, having been justified... Justified. How? How do I get justified? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say that this hope does not disappoint, just in case it was like thinking, I hope I'm saved. No, it's, I'm, I'm confident. This hope does not disappoint. We're justified. We have peace now, peace in my heart with the Lord, because I know all my sins were paid for on Calvary. Every sin I've ever done or will do was dealt with by that one moment on the cross through Jesus Christ. And wow, I have peace. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22 says this. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. To, on, to all and on all who believe. In Romans 3.28, skip down a few verses, he says, Therefore we conclude, here's the point he's getting at in Romans 3, that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now notice this, that the deeds of the law would include things like loving your neighbor, which is written in the law. It would include not only circumcision and all that, but it would include just the kind of be a nice guy type stuff. You know, and do things for God and serve the Lord in your life. Like this type of thing would be included in the deeds of the law. And I'm justified apart from those things. Apart from me being a wonderful person or a good guy. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Let's just read this together. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Now it was important when Paul wrote Romans. He was like saying, I've got to not only tell you what Jesus said, what the apostles teach, but I've got to tell you how it's consistent with the Old Testament that even Abraham was saved by faith, apart from works. So, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Now, he's quoting the Old Testament here, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. <gasps> the Old Testament says Abraham just believed and God gave him righteousness? What? 
Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you work, then you are owed what you get paid. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Could it be more clear? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So I do not get imputed my sin, but instead I get imputed righteousness. He just gives me righteousness. And in this passage, which when I read to a friend of mine who might be watching this video at some point. So hi, Tony, if you're watching the video. Um, I don't know if he remembers this conversation or not, but it went like this. We talked for hours about the gospel, and, and he's Catholic, great guy. He's a Catholic friend of mine. We were discussing the differences, you know. And uh, I, I quoted him Ephesians 2, but I didn't tell him I was quoting the Bible. I said, but Tony, the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And his response was, now, Mike, that would be scary if that was in the Bible. And then I proceeded to pull it out and read it to him. And I'll read it to you again. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And Tony responded, Mike, I don't think it means what you think it means. And I go, Tony, I never told you what I thought it meant. You just said it'd be scary if it was in the Bible. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it was kind of a fun moment. But the idea here is that we're saved by grace apart from works. And works come later. Works are a result of my salvation. They don't get me saved. I like the equation like this, right? Faith, faith saves, right? Faith saves. So if we were to put it sort of in a math format, the, the gospel would be like faith in Christ equals salvation plus works. They, it, they come naturally as a result of your salvation. But the Roman Catholic gospel is very different than this. It's going to say faith plus works equals salvation. And it's on the other side of the equation that I need, to, I need to earn my salvation. But that goes in the face of so much scripture and even examples of people being saved. The Catholic doctrine of justification is radically complicated. And I'm not going to get into all the details. So I'm going to try to summarize it for you. And I hope I can do this and catch the heart of it and be very accurate in the way I do this. But if I can say this, salvation is not by grace alone through faith alone. According to the Catholic Church, being justified or declared righteous is a process that begins at the moment of baptism and then progresses and is maintained by a person's participation in what are called the seven sacraments or basically through works, through works. They don't deny grace. They simply add works with grace. So the Catholic Church will say, yes, you're saved by grace. Yes, we need to be saved by grace and works. The Council of Trent is relevant here because it's, of course, this is current Catholic doctrine, and it's one of the probably one of the best known councils of the church, and they were very clear on these things. So let me read to you just two quotes from this council that talk about their understanding of how people are saved. From Trent, Canon 32, over here, it says, If anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God, that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merits of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit an increase of grace, eternal life, and in case he dies in grace, in case he dies in grace, that attainment of eternal life itself 
and also an increase of glory, let him be anathema. So in other words, if you don't say that, that works add to your salvation and help you maintain it and assure it, then, then you're, you're anathema. Um, then it says, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that he... Uh, that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Which is basically, I'm anathema, because what I just read to you guys earlier and said, that it's, it's, it is a sign. It's, it's, it's evidence of my salvation, but it's not what causes my salvation. Trent also said this, if anyone says that the justice received, oh, excuse me, um, I already read that. <laughs> So let's move on. Um, I'm trying to avoid reading too much of the content from the uh, from the councils, only because it is difficult to follow. So I'm, I'm just I'm not saying trust me. Go look it up on your own. Go ahead. But the basic statement is this: justification is a process that starts with baptism, but you're not totally saved yet. There's all these sacraments you have to do. You have to do a lot of good works in order to be saved. That's the point. And because of this, justification is a process as opposed to the biblical belief: like, man, you're saved, you're saved, right? That's the idea. I'm saved, I'm forgiven. But in Catholic uh, teaching, it's a process, and it has to. I have to continue working at it and working at it, and I never really know for sure. What, whether I've got it or not. That's the second problem. Justification in the Catholic Church, salvation, is uncertain. You are not sure you're saved. It's possible in Roman Catholic theology to have faith in Jesus, but not be good enough to be saved. That's a legitimate... People are in that spot. You believe in Jesus, but you have sinned too much, and so you're not saved. You need more good works. It is also temporary... Salvation, according to Roman Catholic theology, is a temporary issue. It can be lost in a moment when you commit something called a mortal sin. You're not saved. You lost all of the grace that Jesus has given you when you committed that mortal sin. It's gone, just like that. Mortal sins, now there's no list of mortal sins out there. There's no official Catholic list. They, they call the seven deadly sins. That's not an official Catholic list of, of mortal sins. But it's something that they hope gets people closer to the heart of what the issue is. Um, what's a mortal sin? Like maybe if I look with lust, maybe that's a mortal sin. Or maybe it's if I do it this way or that way. And, and it's, they're not entirely sure which sins are mortal sins, to be honest. Um, some are clearly mortal sins. If I murder somebody, I've obviously committed a mortal sin. Most of the lists I found where people tried to provide a list, it wasn't official, but it was them trying, included like abortion as, as one of those things. But they actually have this sin of presumption, which is presuming that you'll still be saved 10 years from now or even five minutes from now, that that's a sin. And so assurance of salvation to a Catholic is considered arrogant. Why? Well, if you're basing your salvation on your good works, along with faith, then it would be arrogant to just assume that you're going to be good the rest of your life. But if you're basing it on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then it's not arrogant, it's just faith. I'm just trusting you what he's done. Now let me read to you what the Council of Trent came up with. Uh, They said this about salvation. It is given as a reward promised by God himself to be faithfully given to their good works and merits. By those very good works, by those very works which have been done in God, fully satisfied the divine law according to the state of this life and to have truly merited or earned eternal life. And you might say to a Catholic, hey, but we're saved by grace. And the Catholic says, yes, that's right, we are. 
And you go, wait a minute. But you think I'm saved by, you're saved by works. And they go, no, we don't. So, so we're saved by grace. Yes, we are. So grace alone saves. Oh, no, not alone. You need works too. They believe in faith plus grace plus works. It's all of the above. And the thing is, it's weakest link in the chain. And so the works is the thing that becomes the target. This is actually really grievous because if you're Catholic, you have no confidence of, of, of your salvation in Christ. And this is what I want to go out and I want to, I want to reach out to my Catholic friends and family and my neighbors and be like, hey, Jesus paid it all. You could be forgiven by his grace. It's not about going to the priest and talking and doing all that. You just need Jesus. Every sin covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they say, no, but it's both grace and works. Well, the Bible rejects the concept that you can have grace and works combined. And I want to give you, I've already given you one scripture. Let me give you, let me give you this again. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And then we'll look at Romans eleven six 6 right after that. God rejects the idea that you can add grace and works and have some combination of the two in order to be saved. And here it is. Now to him who works, Romans 4, 4, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That you can't have the two. It's one or the other. Works. In fact, Romans eleven six couldn't be more clear even though sometimes you read this, and if you don't read it slowly, it is a little unclear. <laughs> because, because he's dealing with here a definitional thing. He's defining grace and defining works so that we cannot come to the conclusion that it's grace plus works. Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. But what if I combine grace and works? Well, otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it's grace plus works, it's not grace. Hey, here, you can have my Bible for free. All right, 20 bucks. Well, hold on. Either it's free or I pay for it, but it's not both. You can't mix the two. That's, that's, you're just redefining terms in order to have your new theology. And it goes on, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. If you're laboring for salvation, it is not grace. And if it's grace, it's not labor. And that is the beautiful freedom we have in Jesus Christ, that we're saved by grace, just by grace. And you can say, well, by grace alone. And I was like, well, if grace is with works, it's not grace. So, of course, it's grace alone, because that's the only kind of grace there is. Free is when you don't pay. <laughs> grace is when you don't work. That's what it means. So it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, they can selectively quote the fathers. But that's not what the Bible teaches Faith saves. Faith saves. James 2 talks about how uh, Abraham was justified, it says, by works. But it's speaking of justification in the eyes of man. In other words, how do you prove to me that you're saved? How do you prove to me your faith? You show me with works. So works are, the, again, the evidence of faith. Read James 2 in context. He's not talking about how you get saved. He's talking about how you show you're saved. I will show you my faith by my works. That's what he says. Not, not it will exist because of works. Uh, but it's still faith that saves. And it is dead faith, or fake, you might call it fake faith, <laughs> that doesn't save. Because um, real faith will end up producing works. But the works don't save. That's just a natural result. Another verse that they'll quote sometimes, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, says this. And uh, we're almost done here, but I, I wanted to get a couple of the verses you'll hear quoted to combat all of the scriptures I quoted. And there's so much more. 
um, that talk about free salvation through belief. Um, Therefore, my, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, and here's the, here's the part, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this scripture was given to me once, and I was just like, oh, uh, I never, uh, I read Philippians, but I don't remember noticing that. Like, oh, wow. And I was much younger, and I was like, kind of like, wow, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I thought, well, it says work out. It doesn't say work for. And so I, there, there's something different there. But, and there is, and of course, work out means like a math problem. Like, you know, figure out whether you're saved or not. But verse 13 was ignored. And verse 13 in Philippians 2, the next verse, it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So again, I find it's God working in me to let me see the evidence of the salvation in my life. So work it out. Are you really saved? Well, look at your life. Do you see yourself following Jesus? Or are you living after the flesh? In which case, not work harder to be saved, but get saved so that you can see the works. They're a result. They're a result. So the conclusion so far as we kind of end for today. There is no validation for the Roman Catholic claims to authority. There's none. None, Nothing that really validates it. Authority would be the only reason to embrace the extra-biblical teachings of the Catholic Church if they have the authority to say that stuff. So we need to reject the papacy. We've got to get back to the word of God like Jesus wants us to. For every reason that we've gone through so far, we should, we should be looking at the Roman Catholic Church and testing it with the scripture and chewing up the wheat and taking it in. Oh, that's good, that's good, but spitting out the chaff. I actually got, uh, we, we, we were picketing, at the, you know, doing a pro-life picket thing just this last Saturday. So cool, all these people coming out there to stand for the life of these little babies and just so beautiful, so awesome. And we partnered with Roman Catholics and we totally held up signs and we had a great time with them. It was wonderful, right? They're people the Lord loves. Absolutely. They're not villains here. But they're missing the gospel. If they're believing everything the Catholic Church has said, they're missing the gospel. Catholics can be saved. Many of them are. Not because of the, necessarily the teachings of the church, but because they read the word or they encountered someone who shared the truth with them and they've believed and they're saved. But our goal here, our goal here is to just be believers who really follow Jesus and to realize that this, this is kind of weird. If the Catholic Church was this really small little group who lived down the street from you, and the Pope was just this one guy, you know, who had like 10 followers, and two of them were considered priests, and everybody was told that they couldn't be saved except if they submitted to this guy down the street from you, like three houses down, calls himself the Pope, whatever that is. I mean, you would just dismiss it out of hand. The thing about the Catholic Church is that it's so big. It's just so big that it becomes more like, oh, well, maybe I take it more seriously because of the numbers, but not because of what the scripture teaches. And, um, and I would say the Catholic Church is in disarray. Most Catholics don't know Catholic theology, let alone believe it. So our goal is, of course, not to go up to them and combat them with Catholic theology, but to ask them questions, find out what they believe, and preach them the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And whether I get them to leave the Catholic Church or not is totally a secondary concern. I just want them to know Jesus. I want them to know the peace that comes through faith in Christ, that by grace we stand in him, cleansed, holy, blameless before him in love. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I want for them to have. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your truth. You've given us a pure gospel. You've given us freedom and forgiveness. You've delivered us from our sins, Lord Jesus. And we're so grateful. 
We pray that we would just hold on and we would cling to, hold fast to the gospel that we have received, to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And that we'd be enabled, Lord, to converse and talk and, and help others to know, to know you, because that's what it's ultimately about. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. And we believe in Jesus' name. I'm Mike Winger, and next time we're going to handle less important issues, but oddly enough, issues that you might find more interesting. We're going to use the Bible to examine Roman Catholic teaching on the sacraments, indulgences, purgatory, the Eucharist, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other teachings that have slowly cropped up into the Roman church over time, in fact, over millennia. If you love what I do here and you wish more people knew about this stuff, then I have a request. Please just take one moment to give a positive review of this podcast. Uh, Positive reviews go a really long way towards getting the message out and more people will, will listen and hear it and hopefully their lives will be impacted in a positive way. And it's a way that you can partner with me, and it doesn't cost you anything. So I I think it's something you can do. So thank you so much, and until next time, don't forget to check the context.